Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. I want you to imagine something with me for a second. I want you to think a few weeks back to the Super Bowl. Just imagine that you were invited to be on the sideline with the Chiefs. There you are on the sideline. You can see all the players, all the hustle and bustle. You see the game go on. And I want you to imagine marching up to Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for the Chiefs, and Andy Reid, the coach, and telling them, I think you need to do a handoff this play. What presumption to think you know the team, that you understand the game, that you understand what's best more than the the greatest minds right now in football. It's terribly presumptuous. And only a fool would really do that. And if we think about prayer for a second, it's actually not that far off. I mean, we believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that all the cosmos is held together by his love, his free choice to let it be there. Mountains, atoms, proteins, supernovas, the vast and complicated concourse of human history, all answers to him. And we have the audacity to tell him what he should do, how he should order his universe. What arrogance, what presumption and folly. Oh dear, (laughs) I was wondering when that would happen. Uh, What arrogance and folly. To think that A, the universe should answer to our whims. To think that B, we know what's best, given the infinite range of possibilities that God could order. And when we think about this and we ask, commonsensically, prayer is, is deeply presumptuous. How is it possible then that we dare to pray? Now, the last couple of weeks we've been embarking on a journey to the cross through the lens of the small catechism. We've thought about, Pastor Bruick led us into reflection on God's law as his boundaries of love. His beautiful creative design, which can be stated so simply, to love God and love your neighbor with ten commandments that flesh it out when we need more detail. Yet these boundaries expose for us our own rebellion, the fact that creation does not work the way God intended it to work. And so last week, Pastor Remfer led us into Jesus' mission to proclaim the truth, to witness to the truth about the world and about human rebellion and about our enemy, and to die and rise and overthrow the reign of the devil with the powerful proclamation that it is over. And so it is only now, as people who know the God who created with a good design, and people who know even more so God is the one who sent his Son to reconcile his wayward creation, only now can we begin to pray. With the very simple answer, how can we dare pray? Because Jesus taught us how. It's that simple, because Jesus taught us how. Jesus, in teaching us, as we just read in the Gospel lesson, does not want us to sweat the fact that God already knows what we need. That God, in his infinite knowledge, and in his infinite power and wisdom, is so far beyond our own perceptions of what we need, that need not deter us. And he taught us how to pray with this truth in mind. We pray this Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, so many times it's, it's often difficult to hear. It's difficult to understand the words and kind of wrap our hearts and minds around them. And today I want to present it to you afresh, Not in the presumption that I'm going to say anything new. This is probably the most thought about and reflected on words in the history of the church. But I want to divide it up into three parts for you. 
What does it mean to pray the Lord's Prayer? And how does it prepare us to face the audacity of prayer? Three parts. As God's people, we pray for God's victory and the strength to wait for it. As God's people, we pray for God's victory and the strength to wait for it. It starts with the address, our Father who is in heaven. Not our, I'm sorry, not my, but our. Even when you pray this prayer alone, you pray it together with the church, with all who call God their Father. And this is no mere presumption because this is to say that I pray as part of Israel. You pray as part of Israel. All the way back in Exodus, uh, Yahweh told Moses to say, Israel is my son. And so Israel has always known themselves as the people God called into fellowship into his family. And we pray as part of Israel, as those Gentiles who's been grafted by faith into the, into the tree of Israel, so that we can pray together with Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, with saints of old and saints to come. We can lift our voices in prayer, knowing, calling God Father on the strength of his promise. But we pray to our Father in heaven, And this Father in heaven, there's a whole bunch that we could get out of this. And the first thing is that we pray to nothing on earth. No creature. No created thing. We pray to our Father who exists in heaven, that is, in the realm over our heads, that is accessible everywhere. But even in praying this, in praying to our Father in heaven, we have also, Jesus teaches us, to admit the problem. Because to pray to our Father in heaven is to not be in heaven. It is to pray from earth. And thus, by saying these words, we admit that heaven and earth are separated. And that ought not be. If we go back in our Bibles all the way to Genesis, heaven is literally on earth in the garden, where God dwells with Adam and strolls with him, Adam and Eve, in the garden. We look at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, what we see is the city of God descending down out of heaven into a new earth so that God can dwell forever on earth with his people the way he intended. So for us to pray to our Father in heaven is to say that these two are not yet reunited. And we acknowledge that things are not as they should be yet. And so we immediately pray for God to fix that. That's the force of the next three petitions. We we often divide these up into seven, and you can go a couple different ways with it. But these three requests, hallowed be thy name, or may it be made holy, your name. May it come, your kingdom. May it be done, your will. They are parallel ways, similar, but only subtly different, of asking for the same thing. For God's final victory. That God's name would be hallowed, All through the earth, all through the nations, is the promise that we read in our Ezekiel passage. That his name, which is holy, would be known as holy through Israel among all the nations. That is the promise of when God comes to reconcile, to bring heaven back to earth. All will know and praise Yahweh. Luther noted, actually, that all three of these petitions all kind of have the same force of on earth as it is in heaven. So, may your name be made holy on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a long exegetical tradition that goes back even as far as origin. Modern and ancient scholars agree that, that, that on earth as it is in heaven is a framing tool, a way of saying what it means for each of these three to happen. And so Luther teaches us in each situation to say, well, God's name is holy in itself, that is, in heaven, but we pray that it may be kept holy among us here 
and now on earth. So we pray, Jesus teaches us, for God's final victory, for all the earth to know the glory of Yahweh. That's what Ezekiel 36 literally means. The nations will know that I am Yahweh. That's what the text actually reads. And through you, Israel, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This day began when Jesus sent out his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it will continue until that day when the earth is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that is what we pray for. God, finish what you started. Let your kingdom come. We know Jesus came beginning. The reign of God, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And actually, a a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mail talked to us about how kingdom doesn't mean place. Kingdom means reign. It means the exercise of authority. So what this means is reign here on earth, God, just as you reign in heaven. Bring and flood this whole creation with your justice and righteousness. And this is, again, part of Israel's hope. Part of Israel's hope for God's great day, when he will come and rule over creation and get rid of all the corruption and violence and lies that seem to lead all the nations. To get rid of the day when when hurting other people would be the way to get ahead. Bring that day when justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And that will of God, that will of God that, that Pastor Bruick spoke with us about in his law, We pray for that day when that will of God would be our will. When we would love God and love our neighbor perfectly, freely, and joyfully of our own accord. That day when our hearts perfectly reflect the image of God that he made us to have. That day, which Ezekiel spoke of, when God would give us hearts of flesh. And so we pray for that final day when God finishes what he started for us in Jesus. What he began, what he continues through the work of his church All three of those petitions can be summed up with our Advent prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Finish what you started. Make it so that we love you and love our neighbors. Make it so that this world is not reigned by lies and injustice. Make it so that all know you and praise you. And in the meantime, give us the strength to wait for that day. That's the second half of the prayer. We can sum up each, everything changes once we get past this on earth as it is in heaven. The needs turn to those things that we all frequently need each day. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All three of these are ways that Jesus is teaching us to wait. Let's talk about that. We pray for the bodily needs of the day. Give us this day our daily bread. And there's a whole bunch of things we can talk about here, especially the fact that one of the words, we have no idea what it means. The word daily is a best guess. It's a word that literally does not occur anywhere else in Greek. But the key is that we ask God to give us our bread. In spite of the fact that we think we earned it, in spite of the fact that we, in all our striving, in all our excellence, in all our failure, in all our work, In all our independence and success, we acknowledge that our daily bread comes as a gift. That we are dependent on God to provide. And so we ask that God give us today what we need to support our bodies. Not what we think we need or what marketers have convinced us to think we need. Not what we want, but what he knows we need. Not what we think we earned or deserve, but what he knows we need. 
whether that be food or a just land or a good family or a great house or home, something to, to protect you from the elements. Whatever God knows you need to get through today, we ask, keep us alive. But God also cares deeply, not only about our bodily well-being, but our relational well-being. And the next petition asks for the relational needs of the day. First and foremost, with our relationship with God. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others are deeply bound together. And in this petition, Jesus teaches us to admit that sin is a daily reality. And it continually tries to get us to stop waiting, to stop trusting, and to give up. And so in spite of all the good things you might have been able to do today, in spite of how many sins you avoided, Jesus teaches you daily to ask for forgiveness because he knows that that is the only thing that's going to sustain you until that day. Because he knows it's the only thing that's going to sustain your relationships with other sinners until that day. And so he teaches you not only to pray for the needs of your body, but the needs of your relationship with him and the needs of your relationships with others. Because his forgiveness is the only thing that's going to hold us together And lastly, we pray for our spiritual needs. I actually grouped the sixth and seventh petition together because I think they actually are two ways of saying the same thing. Um, And this is probably the most confusing. Lead us not into temptation. And everyone's saying, well, does God tempt us? And it's easier historically to say what this doesn't mean than to say what it does mean. And what it doesn't mean is, A, you're not praying, God, don't tempt us. That's not what Jesus taught us to pray, and God does not tempt anyone. As James makes clear, and Luther says, God tempts no one. But it also doesn't mean what sometimes people try to get it to mean, which is, well, lead us not into testing. Because Scripture is very clear that God often and frequently leads his people into testing. He tested Abraham. He tested Israel. Paul describes, he defines God as the one who tests our hearts. And James teaches us that God's testing produces steadfastness. So it's not asking God, don't test me. That'd be like asking God, don't make my heart stronger. So it's easier to say what it doesn't mean, but what does it mean to ask God, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Well, let us first ask then, does God ever lead anyone into temptation? And the answer for that is actually yes. If you were listening very carefully a couple weeks ago to Pastor Bruick's sermon on the temptation of Jesus, it follows immediately after his baptism. The Spirit descends into him, and then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, quote, in order to be tempted by the devil. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the combat between his will and the devil's will, is brought to him, it is propelled in him by the Spirit of God. The Spirit leads his Son into battle with the devil. And this same Spirit leads God's people into battle with the devil. Into temptation, into struggle against, well, as Paul says, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and powers. That very, the very existence of the Spirit in you is what occasions the fight. And to have the Spirit is to be propelled into battle, into temptation. And that is why these go together, because you're not just praying, do not just lead us into temptation. You're praying, lead us out of it. Deliver us from the evil one. Now, this is kind of weird, because we, we don't... How, well, he says, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And the best way that this, I've actually heard this explained is, and this is a little bit of grammar, grammar stuff, and you can ignore this and forget this if you want, but as a form of deliberate overstatement called dialectical negation. Dialectical negation is when you say something like this, I don't want A, I want B. 
What you really mean is I don't just want A, I want B too, and even more so. So this goes all through the Bible. Jeremiah says, I, don't, I want mercy, not sacrifice. Well, did God ever command sacrifices? Yeah. But Israel had done those without doing mercy, and so God says, I don't just want your sacrifices even, and especially more so, I want mercy. Luther actually does this in the small catechism. In the questions on baptism, when it says, how does water do such great things? In German, he actually says, water truly does nothing. But it is the word of God in and with the water. Luther's overstating. He doesn't obviously think the water does nothing. But he's not just the water, but also the word of God. And so here, this is what I think Jesus is doing. Do not merely lead us into combat with the Spirit, but also, and even more so, lead us out. Deliver us from the evil one. Do not merely lead us to challenge the sinful nature that exists in our heart, that goes on out there in our society. Also lead us to be victorious over it. That's that final petition. Teach us to struggle against evil, against rebellion, so that on that day when you come and when you fix all this, we'll actually want to be on your team will actually want to be part of this new creation where justice and righteousness reign. And thus, Jesus taught us to pray, to face this massive presumption of prayer by placing all our chips on the promise of God. For it is God who promised to call us his people, and therefore we can address him as Father. It is God who promised that one day his name would be made holy throughout all the earth and that his victory over evil would be the future of all human happiness. So we pray for that victory that he promised. And it is his promise to provide, to forgive, and to strengthen his saints against the assaults of the enemy. And so we pray for that strength to wait for him. So in other words, prayer is not presumption. It is faith. So let's do it. Father in heaven, you have taught us to pray. You have taught us to be bold and to stand before you, ignorant of so many things, undeserving in so many ways. And yet you invite us, in the midst of all your great, glorious knowledge and power, to tell you how we think your world should go. And so we do it, entrusting ourselves to your hands and your fatherly care. We ask that you finish what you started that you do what you intended to do from the foundations of the world, to unite all things in Jesus. And we ask that until that day comes, you strengthen us by your Spirit. Feed our bodies, give us what we need to survive. Feed and strengthen our relationships, give us what we need to be whole. And strengthen our wills and resolve against the assaults of the devil, that we might be found in you and in you alone. Amen.